welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and humanities about why and how they do what they do. Our guest, Rich Remsberg, is a musician, photographer, 78 RPM record collector, and a longtime friend of the VMC. He's the author of, among other works, Hard Luck Blues, Roots Music Photographs from the Great Depression, from Illinois University Press. And he has worked ex intensively and for many years as a visual archivist for documentary films. Rich, we like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon how the idea of the vernacular, whatever that means to you, intersects with your own work. But just before that, maybe we could start out by asking you about your day job and about the life events that brought you to that gig? Well, my day job is as an, uh, working on, a, on documentary films as an archival producer. And what that means uh, technically is all of the, uh, the third-party uh, material in a documentary film, anything that's not shot by the crew, is generally something I'm responsible for. What, but that usually means is the vintage film footage and photographs and newspaper headlines and maps. Um, so when you, when you see a, 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 a doc that has old film footage, I, or someone like me is the, the, the person who found that. And then there's that, that's half of it. And then the other half is, uh, clearing it and, uh, managing the budgets and all the, the non glamorous side of, of filmmaking. Yeah, I, I've followed Rich's work for years. We've been friends for years, actually, ever since Bloomington, Indiana. And it's been fascinating to me to watch how the process of assembling the archival material for a documentary comes together. And it's been sobering for me to begin to grasp a little bit of what's involved in getting permissions to use all that material. Yeah, my job is to get the material from wherever it is into the edit room whatever that takes and sometimes that's a simple matter sometimes it takes a lot of money sometimes it takes uh cajoling someone difficult uh who has the material uh, but whatever it takes to do that uh we've got to get it in and find a way to to, to clear it so that makes me wonder since we are vernacular musicians and uh, we work for the vernacular music center and a lot of vernacular music is in the public domain. Are there images, um, stills, and moving uh, images, films that are in the public domain? Yeah, quite a bit. And that's what a lot of my job is, is to figure out how much of that can we use so we still have money left over to, to license everything else. Uh, the National Archives, the Library of Congress, NASA, the uh, National Library of Medicine. There's, there's a number of good sources for moving images that are are public domain, and free or close to free to to use. Yeah, I had particular occasion to be grateful for that because Rich was kind enough to lend some of his expertise when I was trying to source images for a couple of different books. But I also want to take a a moment to acknowledge that Rich is actually. Um, a press mate of mine. His his book is published like mine by Illinois University Press. And it's a book I remember talking about very early on before it even came to press. You, you, we talked, you bounced some ideas off of me, and I was singularly unresilient about, about what this project would be. Can you tell us about Hard Luck Blues? 
Yeah, I don't remember your own resilience. I remember <laughs> that you were involved from the beginning. Uh, the Hard Luck Blues is uh, it's a collection of photographs, all public domain, uh, of from the Farm Security Administration uh, of 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 uh, roots musicians. Is I guess the way I, I defined it in the book. The Farm Security Administration uh, was a, a New Deal agency uh, from for purposes of this discussion from 1935 to 1943, uh, where a number of photographers fanned out across the country. They started documenting soil conditions and, and uh, you know, agricultural uh, problems as a way of documenting uh, financial need to, to report to Congress. But uh, because of the, the vision of the program's director, Roy Stryker, it grew into this enormous visual index of American culture. And uh, he was very concerned with small town life and uh, the, the, the visual, um, visual indicators of, um, of Americana. Uh, and people have combed through that collection. It's an enormous collection, a couple hundred thousand images. And people have combed through that in a lot of thematic ways. Uh, but, I was surprised that no one had done that for music. So I did <laughs> and went through uh, about all the images and picked out the, uh, the ones that had to do with uh, music playing and, and performance and compiled them into a book. Uh, so when you, when you're searching through images, can I assume now there's probably keyword searches attached to those images, but at the time I, the book was published, what, uh, 2010? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you were doing the research, presumably, for what, 10 or 20 years before that? Uh, yeah, 10. 10, Okay. Yeah. This was always a side project for mine. And, and I, it got started because it was one of the first, it was one of the first things on the internet. Uh, and I had a job working at the digital library at Indiana University. And there really wasn't enough for me to do at this job. And... I spent a lot of time on eBay and just goofing off. And then uh, I went to the Library of Congress site to see if they had put any of the FSA images online. And in fact, they had put all of them online. And the keywording was there, but a lot of these things were, were not indexed. So I was able to find some stuff by searching on guitar, banjo, fiddle. But then there's a lot of things that either were not meta tagged with with that in mind or didn't have any any cataloging at all. So I just flipped through digital pages after digital pages and I had the perfect job for it because I had nothing else to do. So uh, I just spent a lot of time flipping through and looking for looking for signs of music. Yeah, looking for signs of music, and they are amazing images, some of them familiar, some I had never seen before until they appeared in the book, which is a beautiful looking book, large scale, and beautiful reproductions of these photos. But then the the work, the investigation actually went further, didn't it? Because some of those folks had been identified and some of them hadn't been, and, and you did a lot of that tracking, didn't you? Right. Very few of them had been identified, some of them, but... Uh... Yeah, I tracked down a number of the people who appeared. It, it you know, it was it, uh, an interesting time of the the digital revolution because we were all starting to think differently about how to do research and what you could what you could do with that, how you could ask questions, and being able to to browse through all those negatives uh, online was one way of doing it, but then also in the early internet, <clears throat> excuse me, being able to make connection, you know, fi finding some of the people online, but also just being able to send out email instead of having to write letters was, um, was a revolution. And I was able to, to just send out a lot of, a lot of queries to local historical societies and find the local people. And I was able to find a number of people that way. Um, and, and some of the people were still alive, some were not, but I got to interview a handful of them. They were elderly at the time, but 
Yeah, I should also mention uh, Hard Luck Blues is an amazing book, but it's not the first book of yours that I got to know. Uh, it's not something we really discussed prior to opening the mics, but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention what might be some of my some of the most striking work that I've seen in your book work, which is the remarkable book about outlaw bikers called Riders for God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all these feel like old work at this point, but they were important, uh, important projects for me. Uh, Riders for God is about a Christian motorcycle gang uh, in uh, Ellisville, Indiana, Southern Indiana. I became aware of them when I lived there. Uh, I'd see them around town at various things. They were involved in uh, a local youth conflicts and uh on the protest lines at Planned Parenthood and I was intrigued with these people who were bikers but also Pentecostal Christians uh got to uh, I, don't know, I ran into one of them at an auction and started uh chatting him up about about the group and uh garnered an invitation to the church went and started taking some photographs and that turned into two years of hanging out with them and photographing pretty interesting people. They are former, most of them are former outlaw bikers uh, who are now born again, Pentecostal Christians. And they transferred that sense of extremists and uh, from, from a, a violent world of addictions into, uh, into, into, uh, one of recovery and uh, a very fervent um, form of Christianity and faith. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, boy, I'm not sure. What, <laughs> I'm, I'm not accustomed to talking about them without having pictures to to back me up. But uh, it was a great experience. Uh, yeah, the, the photographs for me now feel like old work. But I suppose it's, I was the only one who was really taking pictures of that. So it's, it's the best visual record, uh, of, of, of the Unchained Gang and the Christian motorcycle world. Which came first, Riders for God or Hard Luck Blues? Yeah, Riders for God was first. That, that was about 10 years before uh -huh. Hard Luck Blues. And so is, how would you describe the, the relationship between you as a photographer uh, as as someone who who makes a visual record and the the profession that you're in as an archivist who studies a record is mm -hmm. there a relationship between those yeah there is and um one that i suppose the transition for me was somewhat gradual but then took a, a sudden turn uh i i had four periods of, of that I, th I think of my life as coming in four, four periods, uh, music, cartography, photography, and documentary film. I became interested in photography in my early 20s. I was working as a geographer out in the field uh, and was taking pictures uh, just to show people back home where I'd been and got very interested in photography, visual language, and and um, visual articulation. Being, I, I found I could uh, I could be articulate with uh, with uh, visual imagery in a way that I am not with talking, and uh, was very attracted to that world. And so I taught myself uh, photography. Uh, got a camera and. You know, scanned my way into some darkroom access and, and, and started doing that. One of, one of the, the things about uh, photography that I came to appreciate early on is it's a, a quoting art rather than a creating one. I wasn't working in the studio with setting light. I mean, I did some of that commercially, but for the most part, it was on the street and or, um, you know, in documentary situations. And, uh, you know, so you, you're the 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 art the craft is all about um recognition and quoting and rather than setting anything up and that is very much like traditional music right or 
uh, any of the other stuff that that we're we're uh, attracted to. I I, th I think uh, I don't know. Yeah, com coming to coming to understand quoting as a form of art uh, and recognition as a form of art. Work for I mean that that's something I learned about photography, but that also leads pretty naturally then to not being the photographer. So I, you know, from, from my music background, I was always uh, in the thrall of the Lomaxes and the folk song, the Warners, you know, the, the folk song collectors and the whole, uh, just all the, um, I don't know, the, the working uh, heritage and history and mythology of, of collecting. And I began to apply that to photographs uh, and very much with that idea in mind in the same way that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lomaxes were driving through the prisons of the South. I was hitting the junk shops and flea markets uh, of the Midwest and anywhere that I traveled, rifling through trunks full of photographs, finding the interesting ones and things. And then a, a big believer in the critical mess theory, you pile a bunch of stuff together and see what what how, how they talk to each other what themes emerge and and what what kind of dialogue they have amongst themselves so i i yeah i couldn't get enough of that i just everywhere my wife lisa and i you know that that was the main thing we did was uh flea markets garage sales estate sales i would buy uh, old cameras at pawn shops and when they had, I had to do that for work a lot. And when they had film in them, I would get the film to, I would develop the film or get it developed, see what pictures were on there. So very much the idea of folk song collecting. Uh, and I, I began to see found photography as a form of folk art and uh, having the same uh, what was you know, Jack Conroy's line about uh, we prefer a crude vigor to a polished banality and uh, you know attracted to the to the the vernacularness or the folk artness of of, uh, of photography as much as I was with with uh, music and then making the the leap back to you know more directly answering your question in 2000 a uh, few things were happening. I had some pretty bad health problems and I could see the economics of uh, photojournalism and photography in general collapsing. And that world was becoming increasingly digital, which I was not very interested in at the time. And it seemed like a good time to make a change. And the fourth thing that happened at that time was I realized that doing archival research for documentaries was a thing in the world that one could do. I, there was an article in uh, one of the photo magazines about people who did that. And I thought that sounds like what my brain was made to do. And around that time, I was getting to know a guy who was a, a producer at the local PBS station. And he gave me a couple of assignments said, I think you'll like this. I think you'll be good at it. And it was real PBS kind of fair, covered bridges and local history. And I was good at it and I did like it. And so it, 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 it just extended. Well, for one, it just, that is what my brain was made to do. Uh, it, uh, it, it just clicked in right away. And then <clears throat> It extended that idea of, it, it became like a, it, it was, it's a form of um, cameraless photography. I'm still on the patrol looking for, for the situations to photograph, except someone else has already photographed them. It's just a matter of finding those images. I figure, I, I don't know how many photographs have been taken, a lot, but I figure I've spent I spent twelve or fifteen years taking photographs. I'm going to spend the next couple of decades just finding ones that have already been taken. So that that was the so, transition. So with your background in cartography, I'm sitting here listening to you, and you're talking about your your critical piles idea that C critical mess. 
cr- sorry, critical mess, right. uh, make a pile of stuff and, and, and make sense of it. Do you, do you look at part of what you do with images as mapping them? Um, no, but I think you probably could. Uh, I, to me, the common thread is an interpretive, an interpret, an interpretive approach to fact, or a subjective approach to the to objective givens. So, with starting with music, if you have a ballad, Barbara Allen, that text has been around for about four hundred years. How can you interpret that in a new way? Or in the same way, but you know, how, how do you do the interpretation of that given material? Cartography, the earth is what it is. And then imaging that is the, the subjective interpretive part of it. So you, there's, there's a given, an objective given. It's up to me to do the, the subjective interpretation. Photography, same thing. And, uh, and finding stuff, same things. Yeah, I don't think about mapping that way. I've never, I was never attracted to that part of it. Uh, But I recognize that a lot of people see it that way. Uh, My, I, I, my natural setting is uh, that of an encyclopedist. And so I do like making tidy piles and spreadsheets out of messy rooms full of material. But I also like inverting or, or, or subverting the order. Uh, I, I think that's part of the encyclopedic fun is uh, to, to get into the, uh, I don't know, the, just the, the sometimes stayed given factuality of it and going in and messing it up a little. Yeah, there's a there's a part of this which Roger alluded to right at the beginning of the episode, but I want to look back to it now, which is that I have learned a lot from Rich from seeing and hearing how Rich thinks about things. And he comes from Chicago, and we met at Indiana, and the experiences that he's had as photojournalist, but also as traveling musician, and also this way of thinking of the existing material record as uh, in terms of seeking themes that create that are result from interesting juxtapositions these critical messes and there's a part of that i just want to acknowledge sort of shout out that rich kind of taught me how to listen to 78 rpm records uh, because i come from outside of that particular experience i'm somebody who was i need fidelity and you know i i love a lot of the music that's captured on those records but the medium itself as opposed to its digitized or or vinylized version um but there's a there's a in in hanging out with rich and people who have those interests in both um older recording formats and also older film formats it kind of taught me to approach those media a little bit more the way that the people who first encountered them did. Like I'm thinking particularly of the, is it Vitagraph film? Uh, there was Vitagraph film, but I think you're thinking of Vitaphone. Vitaphone film, yeah. Vitaphone film was an early sound with moving image format. And I remember the trip that Rich and I happened to be on in San Antonio and and we sat down at a friend's house and and looked at some of these Vitaphone clips that this fellow had in the pre-YouTube, pre-internet age. And can you just tell us a little bit about Vitaphone and what you see in those things that differentiate them from, say, the next generation of performance imagery? Yeah, Vitaphone was uh it was the first successful sound on a uh, uh, sound film format the jazz singer which is usually pointed to as the first sound feature film was a vitaphone film the jazz singer was in 1927 and these shorts that you were talking about came out in 1926 uh, and uh the way vitaphone worked is the film was the film and uh actually silent but then 
in the way we think of it now, it didn't have optical printing or a magnetic strip on it. Uh, then there was an accompanying synchronized 78 disc that went with it. And there was a means of syncing those things up so that you got the simultaneous play. That knowledge was largely forgotten after its period of use, but film collectors collected the films because that's what film collectors do. Record collectors collected the records because that's what record collectors do. And at some point they were talking to each other and uh, somebody, probably Ron Hutchinson, made the connection of, of uh, what was going on and started a database to coordinate who had what records with, and who had what films. And these are all owned by Warner Brothers still intellectually. And uh, there's now there's most of them are stored at the UCLA archives. Uh, but they started syncing them back up and making them available. Where we watched the uh, those that, that evening of films was at my friend Rich Marco's house. And Rich was an old friend from Chicago. He's the one who first got me interested in 78s when I was in high school. Uh, and Rich is, he's a, a one of a kind guy. He uh, just super enthusiastic about all things 78 and all things pre-1930 and, and just knows so much about that. And he was, I forget what his role was, but he, I think he maintained the database or something like that of, of who, who owned what. So he had, this is, as you said, in the, the pre-YouTube, really pre-internet days. So he had a, um, one of the few legit copies uh, that there was to be had at the time. Uh, it was a VHS tape. And uh, yeah, I remember we sat in his living room and watched it. I, it was funny. I was just scanning some old negatives and I found the pictures uh, from that night. And Rich is just sitting on the edge. He, he looks, his, his nickname is the, the living cartoon because he looks kind of like a cartoon character. And he's sitting on the edge of his seat just like there's, there's just like a suction tube from his face to the TV screen. He's so into it and they are beautiful. Uh, one that I remember that we watched that night, I can't remember the name of the, the band, but it's a Hawaiian octet and they play like six songs in 10 minutes. And it's just astonishing. You know, as far as what makes those special, well, certainly because of how early they are, and, you know, there's no other documented record like that. But I suppose there's a an analogy to the people who learned music before the advent of radio, uh, or certainly before uh, you know more permanent recordings, uh, where people were just unselfconscious uh, in a way uh, about uh, being on film, you know, in a way that's kind of unimaginable today. We're we're so aware of being videotaped all the time. One of the great things about watching these things with Rich is he's so knowledgeable about the history of the particular performers. And he would point out, uh, we would watch um, the Happiness Boys, uh, Billy Jones and Ernest Hare. And he said, now watch these guys because they did not come from vaudeville. They came out of radio and their performance style is entirely different. And he would riff on that for a while. And then that changed completely the way you saw the, the thing. Uh, or I, I don't know, there's singers who I've just always found either uninteresting or annoying until Rich starts talking about them and putting them in context and then and then seeing them on the on the screen too and it, it just it makes for a, a hugely rich experience and Ch uh, Chaz Chase is that did we watch that one he's the guy uh he he was a vaudeville performer and he lived I remember seeing him on Letterman like he he, he lived a pretty long time but his act was he would eat things uh and not like a circus geek it was more comedic than that so he would start with uh, lighting matches and then swallowing the matches and then he would light a cigarette and then rotate the cigarette around inside his mouth and and puffing on it so it would you know become like a lit cigarette and then do a bunch of mouth manipulations with that like the way a juggler would and then eventually eat that and then he'd eat the whole pack of cigarettes and eventually he eats a ukulele and <laughs> it's, uh, the guy's just a masterful performer and th these guys were you know here's another great thing about that the vitaphones is they documented so many vaudeville performers and they were the um uh, that that era they 
These are guys who would spend 30 or 40 years doing one bit and they just had it so refined. I can't imagine being a comedian now. You do one show, all your materials on YouTube and what do you do? You know, but these guys, you know, they spent their lives on the Keith circuit or the Orpheum circuit touring the entire country, the entire world, playing a different place every night. You just, you've just refined your act. And it, it got so ritualized that when, you know, when, when people would show up to see the guy who eats the ukulele or, you know, whatever. So even, even when their stuff became known, it became uh, an expected kind of excitement. Uh, yeah. Just, it, yeah. Those things are, are just beautiful in ways that just don't quit. The thing that that watching with Rich and his friend, and then reflecting upon that experience was it the the part that particularly resonated for me was that this is a moment in which people who maybe have been performing in vaudeville or other venues for twenty or thirty or forty years before acoustical recording before moving image capture existed they find it or they are found by it. And so there's this, this eye blink moment when you, it's almost as if you're seeing the way it was before there was film, because these are performers who are carrying over from the pre-film era. And as you say, there's a, a remarkable refinement, but also a remarkable lack of self-consciousness. Very much so. Yeah. What One of the, the great things, the uh, great articulations I got from you when I was starting to mess around with found photos and was showing some of you, and you made the comment of how these things capture not only the intended record, but the unintended record. And that is, that's a powerful idea, right? And, and films do the same thing. There's, uh, in bringing it to contemporary work, uh, I worked on a film couple of years ago uh called bobby kennedy for net uh, bobby kennedy for president it was a four hour doc for netflix and there's all these really rich moments of bobby kennedy or lyndon johnson and the way that they speak and i don't mean the elocution i mean just the, the, the their tells come across so uh not just so vividly in film but so uniquely like there's one point where a reporter is asking this is Bobby Kennedy when he was still a scumbag lawyer before he became, uh, you know, the, the 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 reformed crusader that we all love now. But when he was one of Joe, uh, you know, when he, he trained under Joe McCarthy, and there was a, and he was, I guess he was Attorney General at this point, and uh, a reporter asked him about wiretapping. Martin Luther King or wiretapping somebody. And Kennedy just has this uncomfortable pause and then says, I don't know to what you are referring. And if you just read that on the printed page, it would come across as a denial and probably insincere, but it would not have that hesitancy and the that you know the the, the quiet stifled panic in his voice. Or LBJ glad handling people and glad handing people rather, and uh, you can just feel the the backroom politics LBJness, and that that comes across in film in a way it just can't come across in anything else. Uh, other media have their own virtues, but uh, yeah, the unintended record is just as powerful as the intended record. Um, in one of my lectures, I used some uh, some footage it, talking about the Grand Ole Opry when it was founded, and I have some footage of Uncle Dave Macon, and it always um, causes the students in my class to laugh because most of them are unfamiliar with him. But also, the thing that shocks them is his lack of self consciousness when he smiles and laughs at the camera, and also, you know, his dental work isn't, you know. Um, um, up to a modern standard. Um, and I think they find that funny uh, that, that somebody could be so unguarded with a camera on them. And, uh, and I always point that out to them. I say, well, th this is a, a record, a visual record from a time before people 
had had that inculcated in them to where it's second nature, where you're guarded when there's a camera around or a microphone. Um, and he didn't grow up with that. Yeah, that's true. And he was a celebrity, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. In, a, in a funny way, I think we're coming back around to that because of, there's uh, a preponderance of ubiquity of visual documentation. Uh, and, and people are, especially the young people, are so are comfortable with cameras on all the time. And there may be a, some presentation, but their performativeness, but that is actually part of their character now. Uh, you know, documentaries like Amy about Amy Winehouse are possible because she's of a generation that filmed everything, documented everything. There's enough that you can do a 90 minute, 100% archival at least visually, uh, 100% archival documentary about her because it's just that kind of documentation. On the other hand, you've worked on a lot of films. We were looking, before we opened the microphones, we were looking at Rich's website at atlasfilms.org to try to remember what all the titles are that you've worked on. And I've had the good fortune to see some of these, which are multiple award-winning documentaries, multiple films that Rich has worked on have won these awards, very well-deserved awards. And sometimes I've seen them in their final form, and sometimes I've seen a rough cut or something that you were permitted to show me at a certain moment because I live down the street from you. And one of the things that has particularly struck me is it's a phrase that I've heard Rich use. He says, this is 60% archival or 80% archival or even 100% archival. And there is an incredible power about having this footage, which comes from all kinds of sources, perhaps little or none of which was filmed with the documentary in mind, but out of which is being assembled the narrative that the filmmakers want to tell. And I'm thinking, not exclusively, but particularly of the film called Happy Valley. Can, can you talk a little bit about the work that was involved about what it is, and then also about the work that was involved on your side in terms of assembling those sequences? Yeah, Happy Valley was about the uh, sex abuse scandal at Penn State University's football program. Uh, the assistant coach, Jerry Sandusky, who uh, had, had been charged with um, a number of counts of sexual abuse of minors. And the head coach, his boss, Joe Paterno, and whether he covered it up and so forth. Uh, that, yeah, that's a contemporary story. It took place in 2000, I've forgotten now, but you know, in, in recent, recent years. Uh, and the filmmaker, the director on that film, Amir Barlev, uh, is one of my favorite filmmakers to work for because uh, he's extremely demanding in, in a way that I enjoy. Uh, he likes to cut the film in the way that you would if you were filming a, a feature film. So multiple camera angles. and But that all has to come, or largely has to come from the archival. So of these news events, I had to track down all of the cameras that were at, or at least multiple cameras, all, all the cameras we could find that were at various events. Um, and if you watch that film you'll, and you are looking for that, you'll see it. And it's, um, I think it, it makes for great filmmaking. Uh, some of the, the there's the, the two scenes that come to mind are the, um, the press conference uh, where Paterno's being fired. I think I found four, the, the footage from four cameras there, and they used two of them in the edit. And the sequence on Joe Paterno's porch where he's being fired, and uh, I think there are six, six or seven cameras represented there. But boy, you know, I was tracking down every AP stringer who still had a drive that hadn't been wiped and uh, yeah, it's it's an exciting challenge. I I love doing it that way. And uh, the the other thing about that project is it was the only thing 
at that time that I'd worked on where the story wasn't done yet. It was still unfolding. So, you know, a lot of the projects I work on take place in the 1930s or World War II. All the action's done. The film has been forgotten, remembered, cataloged, and then I have to access it. But with with Happy Valley, uh, the different court cases were still happening. So I had to get the archival as it was unfolding with much of it I did. And the the um, the way docs are going now, even that, which was just a few years ago, uh, just feels like an ancient history way of working. The, the volume now is so much greater. Uh, on Bobby Kennedy, we accessed from 75 different archival sources. And I think in our database we had uh, about 2,500 lines of, of archival assets. And that is, that's now a small project. You know, the things I'm working on now, it's like 5,000 lines and there's just, you know, a couple hundred sources. It's, 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 it's great. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more work uh, in a way, but the technology, the technology makes this stuff so much more uh, accessible. And just as we all get better at our craft, it gets more and more becomes accessible. More things, uh, more things are available to tap into, and you can tell such a richer story, uh, both in terms of editorial content, but also in terms of uh, the the filmmaking style, the storytelling style, the richness. So, Rich, you were talking about the uh, uh, proliferation of resources and the richness of those sources. And as a consumer who's on the other end of the process that you're involved in, it seems to me, and I'm wondering if this is true, it seems to me that there are more channels or platforms for documentary film than ever since as long as I've been watching in the 40 some years that I've been, uh, 45 years that I've I've been a consumer of documentary film. Is, am I right about that or is, is that an illusion? You are right. Not only is there more than ever before, I think there's more than anybody ever imagined. And each one of those platforms is limitless. In the old days, if you had PBS and the History Channel and, you know, a, a half, handful of, of outlets, it, at any given time, only one program could show with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Disney Plus. There's a jillion docs or whatever you're interested in, whether it's documentaries or old sports shows or, or old movies, whatever. Uh, it, it's, um, oh, I don't think there's any way to say it except it's crazy. <laughs> and it's, it's um, I just never imagined there being this much volume, certainly of, of work for for me and people like me, but uh, for people watching too. I, the thing that, that hasn't happened, uh, I think, or, or I don't know how to say this, that um, there's a squeeze that happens because of that uh, for projects to be big and headliney and uh, recognizable. The titles all become very uninteresting, but clear. Uh, yeah, it's like when CNN started, everybody thought, wow, it's going to be all this news and we'll get into all these obscure stories. And that, of course, is not what happened. It got pushed into just the same eight minutes of news recycled 24 hours a day. I, I don't think that is happening exactly. But uh, there is this squeeze where the projects have to be bigger and splashier, which I'm OK with. Like, I like working on that and, and I, I, I like that game. What I would like to see, what, what I think would make a better world is if in addition to that there was uh more better trafficked uh outlets for low budget films uh or, or just things that aren't so spot uh that, that don't have the same headline thing but so what we're facing now is the asynchronous delivery of these documentaries I'm, I'm just thinking back while you were talking about it. I was thinking about that and remembering back to um, Walter Cronkite's famous 
documentary from Vietnam that convinced LBJ he uh, not not to run for re-election. Um, mm. and not that that was his intent, but that was the uh, LBJ's uh, decision once he saw that. Um, making a documentary that you know several million people are going to sit together in their homes and watch at the same time is strikes me as probably a different way of thinking about making a film than the way they're being delivered now asynchronously is do, do you do you think filmmakers or um contributors like yourself think differently about documentaries now that the delivery is different uh, kind of but the numbers are still there i mean you know for for the 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 prominent docs uh they get at least as many people watching as as as, Walter, as we're watching Walter Cronkite um i don't know that it changes how we work on it you know sometimes like the legalities of the clearances i have a, a tighter scrutiny um I don't, yeah no i mean i we for myself i try to make the best doc i can whatever the audience is, you know, because you never know when these things are going to blow up, right? Or, or just you know, now things have the 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 possibility of going viral. I worked on a, a short film called A Night at the Garden that came about because Marshall Curry, the filmmaker, and I had been trying for a few years to find a project to work on together, and we tossed around a few ideas, uh, and just never could get anything to to stick, and he emailed me one day and said, what, what do you know about the American Nazis having a rally at, at Madison Square Garden in 1939? I said, oh, yeah, I know about that. He says, is there any footage of that? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, let's do that as a project. I said, well, yeah, everybody knows that footage. And he said, I don't think everybody knows that footage. And then I started looking into it and I realized I didn't know that footage very well and there was a lot more to it. And I was busy with uh, something I was working on. I might have been when I was working on Bobby Kennedy, but I was busy with something else. And anyway, Marshall and I just kind of worked out most of that film. Uh, I, I got the footage. He did most of the film. He did all the filmmaking. And then it sat on a shelf for six or eight months. And then Charlottesville erupted and it suddenly became very relevant again he was able to sell the film and then we had three weeks to actually finish the thing. And it was not a convenient time to do that. It seemed like it was a, a worthwhile project. I wanted to work with Marshall. And so I, I, I squoze it in and did as, you know, did a good job on it for, for those reasons, uh, not anticipating what that, that film would become. It, it went viral, was nominated for an Oscar and it, it just became, far more than than either of us uh ever anticipated when we started the project and so i i just always try to do try to do a good job because my name's going to be on it and there's legal culpability if i don't do my job right and uh so i just try to do it right every time and do it as good as i can every time and then uh once it's in the world that's somebody else's job to see how well it does and I can just comment, I hadn't had a chance actually to say this to Rich off the mic, so I'll tell him this now. The virality of A Night at the Garden was confirmed for me very unexpectedly because I happen to be an avid consumer of podcasts, which is something that I also learned from Rich. And I was listening to the podcast for the HBO fiction series called Watchmen, which I thought was a remarkably good series made by... Um, a filmmaker named Damon Lindelof, who's, uh, you know, Hollywood triple A lister. And he mentions A Night at the Garden in the podcast oh. and having encountered it just after Charlottesville and saying, did you know, he's saying to the interlocutor in the on the podcast, did you know that the Nazis, the Nazi parties were in Madison Square Garden? And the interlocutor says, no. And he says, yeah, and there's a film about it. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that. That's great. You know, we've spent much of this episode of the podcast talking with Rich Remsberg about his work in material culture and in 
photography and in found photography and vernacular photography, and then how all of those things have played into the work that you do as a documentarian. And we've only, I assure listeners, we've only scratched the surface of the breadth and scope and diversity of topics of the films that Rich has worked on. We have not yet talked about Rich's entire parallel life, different ways and different stages of his life as a working musician. And so that brings us to the possibility that we could have you back uh, to talk about your musical background because, uh, you know, 40 minutes ago, you were talking about the periods of your life and the first period of your life that you listed was music. Um, and so maybe we can come back to that and also talk about someone that you uh, had uh, uh, that you worked with and know a lot about uh, Bruce Phillips, Utah Phillips. I'd love to do that. He was the biggest influence on my life and I'd be happy to talk about him. I'd love to talk with you guys. He's one of those people who was so larger than life that he really deserves an entire episode of his own. If not a constellation in the firmament. <laughs> Well, we've been talking with Rich Rimsberg of Atlas Films, uh, archival uh, film and photo um, expert. He's contributed to many, many productions. Uh, you can read about his work at atlasfilms.org. Uh, we just want to thank Rich for being our guest and invite him to come back in the future. Uh, thanks, Rich. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Look forward to coming back. Thanks, neighbor. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video, and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Special thanks to our podcast guest, Rich Rimsberg. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stocker. And our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast special thanks as always to our podcast consultant at seedpodsound.com see you next time <laughs>